firstly from uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28, um, and then Genesis 1, 31 to 2 to 3, and finally Genesis 2, 15. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and over the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Genesis 1.31 to chapter 2. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Genesis 2.15 The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name is Bijan. If I've not met you yet, I'm the lead pastor for our church and really glad to be with you today. We're beginning a new sermon series that will last for the next four weeks, and we'll be exploring what the Bible says about how to integrate faith with your work your jobs, career, vocation, that thing or those things that you feel like your life is for, that you feel like your calling in life is about. And what's amazing, as we'll see over the next four weeks, is the Bible actually has a lot to say about our work, about our jobs. And there's at least two reasons why, as a church, it's really significant for us to spend some extended time wrestling with what does the Bible say about your work? And here's one reason, because of the city that we live in. In a recent global survey, London ranked number one as the most desirable city in the world to work in. And many of you, if you weren't born and raised in London, you came here to work, or you came here to go to school to prepare for work, whether or not you're using your degree, that's a different topic. But work is a hugely important part of life in our city. In fact, many of you I've just talked to this morning have moved to London over the past few weeks or months to work or to begin an internship or to begin a new school program to prepare for your career. So as people who live in this city, work's a hugely important part of life in London. But there's another reason why we as a church should be talking about this, not just because of where we live, but also because... Work is a hugely important part of our humanity. Most people spend most of their time working. And some of us love our work. We get joy out of it. We find meaning in it. Others, and sometimes the same day, vacillate between loving our job and merely tolerating it. We wish we could be doing something different. We wonder if anything we're doing has any significance at all. Some are right now feeling the weight and the burden of extended unemployment or feeling underemployed 
Or maybe you're in a situation in which your workplace is difficult, challenging, maybe even toxic. Work is a hugely important part of life in our city. It's also a hugely important part of our humanity. And work is filled with joy and with sorrow, with struggle and with opportunity. And the question is, does the Bible have anything to say about our work? And the answer is, it says quite a lot. Now, I should say, as we begin this series, when I use the word work, it's important that we realize from the start that when the Bible uses the word work, it doesn't necessarily mean the thing from which you derive a salary. Work is that sense of calling or vocation, the thing that you do in your life that gives you a kind of purpose and an output for significance. And we know that there are plenty of kinds of work or vocations that people don't necessarily get a salary from. I'm thinking perhaps of a parent who is raising children at home. Or maybe you are passionate about something and you are supporting a startup, giving whatever extra time you have to help that startup get off the ground. You might not be earning a paycheck, but you're working, of course. We could also include things like volunteering and serving ways that we extend good in our city. Again, you might not be compensated, but you're working. And so when we're talking about a biblical understanding of work, a vocation, we mean all of that. And the Bible, from front to back, from cover to cover, is actually a story about work. Now, the last thing I want to say by way of intro before we get into our text today, this sermon series is going to be four weeks long. And you can think of each sermon in this series like a chapter of the story of the Bible about faith and work, which means if you miss a week, you're missing something really significant. So if there's something you're thinking about today and you say, he didn't talk about it. Yes, I'm telling you up front, you got to keep coming. We're going to get there. Four chapters in what the biblical story says about how Christian faith can impact your work. Are you with me? Chapter one. The Bible tells us three things in these passages about work. First, work is good. Second, work can be worship. And third, the ultimate work is finished. Work is good. Work can be worship. And the ultimate work has been finished. Let's take a look. Genesis chapter 1, in order to begin our understanding of what the Bible says about work, we've got to go to the very beginning of the story of the Bible because that's where it starts. And here's the first thing I want you to see. When you ask the question, what does the Bible say about work? The first answer it gives us is we have to look at God himself. The story of work doesn't begin with people. It begins with God. The Bible presents God in these earliest chapters as the one who is creating, as the one who is working. You could say that God is the first worker. Look with me, if you would, chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. It says, on the seventh day, God finished the work he had been doing, the work of creation, making everything. And he rested from all his work. Now, in a couple of weeks, we're going to talk about work and rest, hugely important topic. But all we're seeing here is God works. God makes things. God creates. God builds something. The God of the Bible is a God who works. Now, some of you might be interested to know, this is very different than the way ancient people used to think about God or the gods. And frankly, it might be different than the way some people today think about God or the gods. 
In ancient Near Eastern accounts of creation, ones that were written around the time of the Bible but different than the Bible, one of the things that's common in all those other accounts of creation is that the gods created human beings so the gods could chill and the humans could do the work. One, ancient, uh, one scholar on ancient Near Eastern literature puts it this way, Sumerian and Akkadian sources consistently portray people as having been created to do the work of the gods, work that is essential for the continuing existence of the gods, and work that they have tired of doing themselves. The gods in these other accounts create people so that they don't have to work. The God of the Bible is a God who works. And he then creates human beings in his image, and he invites them to join into the work that he himself is doing. The story of work begins with God. And one of the things that God makes, one of the features of his work, is he creates human beings in his image. So come back with me, chapter 1, verse 27. God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. This verse is the beginning of what the Bible calls the doctrine of the image of God. That every single human being, without exception, is made in God's image. That is, they reflect God. They have a capacity to know God. They're worthy of dignity and honor. They're created by God himself. They image God. They reflect him in the same way as a child images or reflects their parents. Every single human being is made in the image of God. Now, we could spend weeks on exploring the image of God, and that would be a profitable sermon series. We could do that. We might do that. But for today, here's all I want you to see. God works. He's the first worker. Human beings are made in his image. Do you know what that means? To be a human being, work is not an incidental part of your humanity. It's essential. It's core. You're made in the image of a God who works. And therefore, work is not an accident. Work is not incidental. It's an essential and core part of what it means to be a human being. You were not created to coast aimlessly through life, to maximize chilling out, and to work as little as possible. That actually runs against the fabric of creation. The God who works made you in his image, and that means work is a part of what it means to be human. And think about this. Glance at 2.15. We're going to come back to chapter 2 and verse 15 in much greater detail in point 2. But God creates Adam and Eve. He puts them in the Garden of Eden. Now, by the way, Eden is a perfect paradise. Eden is the number one holiday destination. I mean, it's the place that you wish you could get to for a break. And God puts them in the Garden of Eden. It's perfect. The world is just as it should be. And God doesn't say to Adam, look at this garden I've made for you. Here's a lounge chair. Just put your feet up and relax. Take it easy. God puts Adam in the garden and he gives him a job. He gives him work. In God's perfect world, in God's created Eden, this perfect paradise, human beings are given work to do. Vocation. This is the garden. Work it, cultivate it, help it flourish. 
Now, friends, I hope you realize how, beginning to see how radical this picture of work is in the Bible and how different it is than most people relate to their work in a city like London. For some people in London, work is a god. You look to work to give you your ultimate sense of identity and meaning. You are what you achieve. We measure our sense of worth with our productivity. So work becomes God. But for other people and many people, work is not God. Work is just grueling. It's a drudgery. You're like, how do I work as little as possible to make as much money as possible to do all the other fun things that I want to do? Of course, there's a place for rest and leisure. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But according to the Bible, work is not supposed to be God or is it just a grueling drudgery? It's meant to be good and experienced as good. And here's what's amazing. Stay with me. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates human beings in his image. God works. He gives them a job. Chapters 1 and 2 come before chapter 3. You're saying, yeah, that's obvious, Bijan. Think with me. If you know the story of the Bible, what happens in chapter 3? Human beings rebel against God. Human selfishness, what the Bible calls sin, spoils everything. But notice... Human beings have a job, are given work to do prior to and apart from sin, spoiling everything. Work is not punishment. Sometimes I know it feels like it with that particular boss. But work as God made it. Work as part of God's good creation is inherently good. And part of God's perfect world to help human beings flourish and reflect him as a God who works. Now, let me just say, practically and pastorally, even as I'm saying this, there's an inherent goodness in work. Work is part of God's good created world. Some of you are feeling sorrow and pain as I'm sharing this because your experience of work hasn't been good. Your experience of work, maybe in the past or maybe right now, has been really hard. Maybe that's because you feel like the stuff that you do with your work is of no significance. Or maybe you are passionate about something that for whatever reason you haven't figured out a way to get paid for. And you feel really burdened by that. Others love their work and they are crushed by their team or teams. You have a supervisor who doesn't empower you but who exploits you. Takes advantage of you. Some of us right now are facing extended or unwanted unemployment or underemployment. And day after day, that's painful. Don't you realize that all those feelings that some of us are carrying today, the Bible says those feelings are completely valid. Because work is meant to be good. Work is meant to be a gift from God. And right now, again, this is all coming next week, we're going to talk about the way sin came in and spoiled everything. But I want you to hear today, if you're bearing pain and sadness because of how hard work is, that's an evidence that work is meant to be good. And that's how God created it. And there is something that he's done to help us experience goodness in our work. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. But friends, what we need to be at least is a church that allows people to bring all of our pain and all of our sadness regarding how hard work can be into the community. Because as Christians, we see the story of the Bible says work originally, inherently, it's meant to be good as a gift from God.
First thing. Second thing we see, not just is work meant to be good, but second, work can be worship. Work can be worship. Now come with me to chapter 2 and verse 15. I'm going to read the verse, and then we're going to spend a few minutes exploring. Chapter 2 and verse 15, second thing we learn about work. It says, the Lord God took the man, this is Adam, and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The first job that a human being ever had was being a gardener. First job anyone ever had. So we have to ask the question, what does it mean to be a gardener? What's a garden? Because this first job says something about all jobs, all work. So what's a garden? A garden is a place first that provides beauty for your soul. Have you ever been in a beautiful garden? It just makes you feel good, right? You're in there and you're like, I feel better about everything. Because beautiful gardens provide a sensory experience that lifts your soul. And as human beings, God made us to need beauty and to respond to beauty. So when you go into a garden, if it's a beautiful garden, something happens where you feel healed or healing. Beauty for your soul. But the other thing that gardens do is they provide food for your body. You see, you're a physical creature and your body needs to repair itself by eating. And gardens are places where you get physical sustenance. And unlike modern gardens, ancient gardens were walled in and fenced places. So the Garden of Eden, the word paradise, literally means a fenced-in place. Gardens were also places of security and safety. When you were inside the garden, you were meant to be with those that you love, protected from threat from the outside. So what's a garden? Your emotional needs are being met through beauty. Your physical needs are being met through food. You're being given security and safety. In other words, in summary, gardens are places where humans flourish. And Adam is a gardener. And that means his job is to take the raw materials of the garden, the dirt and the water and the sunlight and seeds and whatever else gardeners use. You can tell I've not done much of that. And his job is to take all that raw material and to cultivate it in such a way that it contributes to spaces where human beings can flourish. That's what the Bible says work is meant to be. You take raw material and you work it together so that people around you can flourish and experience healing in their souls, provision for their bodies, safety, security, all the things that human beings need to thrive and to flourish. Now, let's just press into this. Have you ever heard the phrase, have you ever heard somebody say, and chances are if you've grown up in a church or, well, yeah, if you've grown up in a church, you've heard somebody say, oh, I just have a secular job. Have you ever heard anybody say that? Usually what people mean when they say that, or that's a secular song, if, you, if you've never been to church before today, probably you've never heard those phrases and better off for you. <laughs> but if you've heard those phrases, certain churches, certain traditions use them a lot. Oh, that's a secular job or that's a secular song. Here's what people mean by that. In life, there are spiritual things or sacred things and there are secular things. So as a pastor, people might say, Bishan, you have a sacred or a spiritual job. You're a minister. You preach. You pray. You do godly things in your job very religious. But I have a secular job. I'm an artist, or I'm a teacher, or I'm working in law or finance. 
secular, meaning not religious, not spiritual. And what happens is that what creeps into our hearts is a division between what we sometimes call the sacred and the secular. Here's my question. Was Adam's job spiritual or secular? God is with him in the garden. God gives him this task. God says, here's what I want you to do with your life. But he's not preaching. He's not singing praise songs. He's planting and he's pruning and he's watering and he's making things grow. So is Adam's job spiritual or is it secular? Let's go further. Look again at chapter 2 and verse 15. The text says, God put man, Adam, in the garden to work it and to take care of it. That Hebrew phrase, work and take care of, is very interesting. And it only appears in a couple other places in the Bible, in the Old Testament. And do you know where else it appears? When it's describing what priests do in the tabernacle. You see, priests in the tabernacle, the tabernacle was the closest thing you got to a church building in the Old Testament. A church building is a place where you come and you sing praise to God. There's Bible teaching and there's community and it's very religious and spiritual. And Numbers chapter 3 verse 8 as an example says that the priests in the the tabernacle, it says this. Numbers chapter 3 and verse 8. They, the priests, are to take care of all the furnishings of the tent of meeting, fulfilling the obligations of the Israelites by doing the work of the tabernacle. So to hear what God's saying, Numbers chapter 3, priests, pastors, go into the tabernacle and they work and take care of the tabernacle. The place where sacrifices are made and praises are sung and the law of God is recounted. Church spiritual stuff. But realize... The first time somebody worked and took care of something was not in the tabernacle, it was in the garden. And what God is saying is the worship that the priests offer in the tabernacle is the same as what Adam offers in the garden. His work was as much worship as theirs was. Friends, one of my great hopes for this sermon series is that as a church, we tear down the unbiblical thinking that some kinds of work are secular and some kinds of work are spiritual. A fully biblically orbed understanding of work says that if your work is done to help human beings flourish and it's done for the glory of God, that's as much worship and significantly spiritual work as what I'm doing right now. That's the biblical perspective. Two authors in a book called Work and Worship, a little academic, but very helpful if you're looking to read more on this topic, put it this way. Whenever these two priests, referring to Adam and Eve, worked the soil, they were engaging in worship as well. Eden was the original site of fully integrated work and worship. The garden functioned as both a workplace and a temple. And therefore, all work when done in faithful service to both God and neighbor is a priestly act of worship. You see, when workers, that is people who have jobs, people employed like you, people who are giving their life to something, when you come into the sanctuary, when you come into Central Foundation on Sunday morning, you don't arrive for a moment of worship. 
You've been engaged in priestly worship all week long. I hope you're beginning to see this. That when you take the raw materials around you, in your job, in your career, at your home, where you volunteer, and you humbly offer it to God to help other people around you flourish, whatever that work is, it's worship. And it's spiritual. And it matters. There is no divide between the sacred and the secular. And may I say, in some ways, your work, if you're out in the city, is more important than mine. My job as a spiritual pastor is to help you do the work of bringing glory to God in the city, wherever you are and whatever you're doing. Work can be worship. Work is sacred. Now, I'm going to give you a couple examples. I'm only going to mention three or four jobs or industries. If I don't include yours, don't be offended. It's because we can't be here all day. But I'm going to try to give you a couple of examples of what this means. And your job is to think out the implications. How do I connect the story of God to what I do in my job? That's the encouragement for today's sermon. Think there's a brother in our church who's a professional sound engineer. What's that? He takes the raw material of music and mixes it together in such a way that people can come in and experience beauty in a setting like this or in a concert venue. That's spiritual work. There's others in our church who are teachers. What's that? That's maybe the hardest kind of gardening there is. Because what are you doing? You're taking the raw material of children being formed and information, and you're working it together and cultivating it. Why? So that children and young people can learn and grow and be formed and prepared for the world. That's huge. Think of about a barista. What are you doing? You're taking raw materials like beans and hot water, and you're working it together to create coffee that people enjoy and can meet over and talk about their life and their joys and their struggles. And you're creating community spaces and pleasing the senses. Or not a barista, what about a barrister? Someone who takes laws and ethics and morality and looks at the complexities of human life and tries to say, how do we cultivate equity and justice in a world that's really broken? I mean, we could go on and on. <laughs> The first job was a gardener. Take the stuff around you and work it together so that human beings can flourish. And every single person is invited, especially followers of God, to look at what they do and to ask the question, how can I take this stuff, this raw material around me, and bring glory to God and help the people around me thrive? And as you do that, and you offer whatever your work is to God, it's a priestly act of worship. Let me give you one more implication of all this. Sometimes I talk to people in the church, in our church, and they'll say to me something like, you know, I, I've been thinking about going into ministry, meaning I want to be a pastor, or I want to work at the church. And I'll say, why? And they'll say something like, because what I do just doesn't feel like it's that important. You know, I, I, I want to do something significant. I want, to, I want to give my life to God. Now, I respect that. And... Some of those people, God might well be calling into ministry, into pastoral work. But I always tell them, it would be very wrong for you to think that working at a church is more significant than not. To think that that kind of ministry is superior than other kinds of ministry. What would happen to our city if all Christians just said, we want to work in churches? 
we'd be hosed. What we need are Christians out in the city being salt and light who say, this work matters to God and God matters to this work. And we can serve him and glorify him and we can see renewal in our industry. We can see renewal in our city through this work. Dorothy Sayers, who, brilliant author, during World War II, she gave a lecture, but then it was written down. You can find it online. It's an essay called Why Work? And in this essay, she says this, talking specifically to Christian leaders. She says, it is the business of the church to recognize that the secular vocation as such is sacred. Christian people, and particularly perhaps Christian clergy, that means pastors, must get it firmly into their heads that when a man or a woman is called to a particular job of secular work, again, in quotes, that is as true a vocation as though he or she were called to specifically religious work. Be challenged by that today. Your work matters to God, and God can matter to your work. Your work can be worshipped just as much as the priest in the tabernacle. Are you thinking about your work in that way? You say, well, I want to, but how do I do it? You know, today, Bijan, in the sermon, right, you're talking about work is good, work is sacred. But honestly, I ask you, how many of you would use those words to describe what you're going to do tomorrow when you show up at your job? This is sacred. This is good. For many of us, those are not the first words that come to mind when we think about our jobs. And why is that? Well, partly it's because you look to too much from your work. You're looking to work to give you an identity that God was supposed to give. In other words, work has become idolatry. And it can't, it can't do that. It can't live up to the weight of that. We'll talk more about that next week. But there are others of you who are looking to your work for too little. You expect too little from work. You simply tolerate it. You see it as a necessary drudgery to make money in order to live. But you really hate it. And what the Bible's inviting us into is to see that work is not just a god, an idol. And it's not just grueling and drudgery. It's meant to be a good gift. That's meant to be our experience of it. In which we worship God through our work. How do you do that? The only way to do that ultimately is to see that the ultimate work has been finished. The ultimate work has been finished. So let me show you what I mean. Chapter 1 and verse 31. This is after God worked, he made all the things of creation. It says in chapter 1 and verse 31, God saw all that he made and it was very good. Then you come down to verse 2 of chapter 2. By the seventh day, God finished the work that he had been doing. So here's what we have. In the creation story, God works. Six days, he builds things, he makes things, he makes all that there is. And then he looks out and he says, yes, that's very good. I'm finished. My work is done. The work of creating, that's complete. Now, he then creates Adam. I mean, Adam's created, but he says to Adam, you're in the garden, and here's what I want you to do, Adam. I finished my work, and now I'm inviting you to join in and to continue the work that I've begun. I made the garden. I want you to cultivate it. And so Adam is hired by God, first job, be a gardener. 
So here's the question. How did Adam do at his first performance review? You know, Adam gets, you know, he's brought in before the boss. He was given a job, cultivate the garden. How did he do? How were his objectives and key results? Adam failed spectacularly. As we'll see next week, instead of serving God and others, Adam and Eve chose to act selfishly. And ultimately, they used the garden, their place of work, for their own interests and brought sin into the world. And since that moment, work and everything else has been spoiled, spoiled by sin. And that's why we look to work either as a God or simply a grueling judgery. And we don't experience it as good because of sin. So the question is, is there any hope? Is there any way that our work can be healed? That work could be experienced as a gift? And yes, there is hope. Because there was another Adam. What the Bible calls the second Adam. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ, on the night before his death, he was in another garden. Not the garden of Eden, but the garden of Gethsemane. And there in that garden, the Lord Jesus, the second Adam, the greater than Adam, surrenders his life to God his Father. You see, where the first Adam in the garden used the garden for his own interest, the Lord Jesus in that other garden surrendered his life to serve others and to please his Father. And that night, the night before Jesus' death, knowing that the next morning he'd be hung on the cross, Jesus prays to God his Father and he says, I have finished the work that you gave me to do. And on the cross, as Jesus was dying, he cries out, it is finished. Do you realize what's happening? In Genesis, when God makes everything creation, God says, I'm finished. It's good. And then we ruined it all. So God writes himself into the story and says, the job that you failed at, the work that you didn't complete, I'll do it myself. And on the cross, Jesus, the second Adam, dies as a substitute. The one who perfectly pleased and obeyed God, his Father, dies in the place of his broken people. And then he says, the work not of creation, but of salvation is finished. It's complete. I did the work, Jesus said. And do you know what that means? Every single time you look to work to give you an identity that God was supposed to give you, Jesus died for that. And every single time you're tempted to say, I hate this, this is stupid, my work doesn't matter, it's not significant. The resurrection of Jesus says, no, if you're a Christian, anything you offer to God, none of it is in vain. All of it matters. And what the cross and the resurrection, the victory of Jesus does, is it both frees us from looking to work as a God or to looking at it as a necessary drudgery. And the cross of Jesus gives us a secure identity and meaning in our life that enables us to go into any kind of work and say, there's some good here. There's some beauty here that can help renew our city and be offered to God in worship. Only when you see, only to the degree that you see, on the cross, Jesus finished the ultimate work. Well, that's the degree to which you're going to experience your work is good. So as we come now to our time of response, we need to look to Jesus. We need to look to the cross and see what he's done. And that's how we can experience goodness in our work. Let's pray. 
Our God, thank you for meeting us today in this sermon. Thank you for speaking to us as we think about the implications of Genesis chapter 1 and 2 for work and for our jobs and our careers. Lord, we want to see renewal in our lives and renewal in our city, and we know that work's a really important part of what we do, of this city. So Lord, in this sermon series, and even right now today, by the power of your Spirit, help us to experience your vision for work. Convict us for the ways we relate wrongly to our work. Bring healing and renewal. Change us and challenge us by your Spirit. Pour out your Spirit now as we respond, we ask in Jesus' name and for his glory. And everyone said, amen.